for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Great to be with you. I'm, I'm, I'm from Bournemouth. I was 24 years in, in uh, Brighton with Terry Virgo. Um, I can tell you all about Wendy Virgo. <laughs> uh, but uh, uh, I've heard about this church partly through Terry and Wendy. And there are churches in New Frontier. So I thought I'd like to go to that church. And Graham did write, I think, about 10 years ago. And I couldn't work the date out. And somehow we then lost contact. Uh, so I was delighted to suddenly get this email out of the blue and uh, asked to come and speak here about the Holy Spirit. So thanks for the invitation. Really enjoyed being in your time of worship this morning. And we are going to look at the the work of the Holy Spirit. If you'd like to take out your mobile phones and turn to Isaiah (laughs) chapter 44. Isaiah 44. Just going to read a few verses at the beginning of that chapter. And now listen, Jacob, my servant Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. Now, you may be a bit surprised that uh, if I'm going to speak on the Holy Spirit, I'll begin in the Old Testament, although if you were looking closely at that reading, you might also identify why I have begun in the Old Testament. Uh, Our God is a speaking God. He's been speaking to us here uh, this morning. And in the book of Hebrews, it actually says that in the past, God spoke through the prophets. Well, here's the prophet Isaiah. He was one of those prophets in the past, and here he is speaking about the Holy Spirit and speaking about the fact that God will pour out his Spirit. And God, of course, is also the I Am which means that God is, he was, he is, and he always will be. He's the God of history, and he's the God of now, and he's the God of the future. So if in the past, if you like, in history, in the past, God said he would pour out his Holy Spirit, why would we not expect God to do that today and in the future? Because he is the great I Am. And who does God pour his Spirit out on? Does he do that on impressive people? Well, actually, as we look at this Old Testament passage, we say, no, not at all. Because at this point in the Old Testament story, God is actually wearied with his people. Not wearied through prayer, but wearied through their sin. And yet God loves this people. He loves the nation of Israel here in this Old Testament story, in this Old Testament prophecy. And so God is going to demonstrate his grace to them, not because that They are wonderful and impressive people, but because he is God. My friends, it's the same with us. God will deal with this in grace, not because we are wonderful, impressive people, but because he is God, and he loves us, and will pour out his spirit. Now, what God says here 
is in a sense in Isaiah 44 typical of Old Testament prophecies in that in the Old Testament period broadly there would have been some fulfillment of this prophecy and in God Indeed, God did pour out his spirit on his people and bring them back from exile. That was one of the uh, ways in which God poured out his spirit. There was a measure of fulfillment then, but so often with Old Testament prophecies, there are later and greater fulfillments in the future. And certainly this is true of God pouring out his spirit. So what we have written here in the Old Testament also points very much forward to the New Testament period. Interesting, here in verse 2 of Isaiah 44, God says, I am the God who will help you. If you go to the New Testament, to John chapter 14, for example, in verse, I think it's verse 16, Jesus says, I am going to send to you the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the Helper. He is the one who's going to come alongside you and help you. So here, in the Old Testament period, God says, I will help you. Jesus said, I will give you the Holy Spirit. I will send another one like me, and he will be your helper. Or again, if you go to verse 3 here, it says, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Well, you go into the New Testament, into Acts chapter 2, and in verse 38 of Acts 2, and this is the day of Pentecost, Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you, your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So in the Old Testament, I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, In the New Testament, the promise of the Spirit is for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So today, our emphasis is going to be on the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy in the New Testament period. And we're in that period. And God says, I will pour out my Spirit. In the New Testament, that's often referred to in terms of being baptized in the Spirit. So let's draw a few things out here. First of all, the Holy Spirit is promised. The Old Testament promise here is that I will pour out my Spirit. And I found it very interesting as I've studied the teaching of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament that again and again, have you ever noticed this, the Holy Spirit is the promised Holy Spirit. Uh, You think of John the Baptist, for example, and in his ministry he points to Jesus and he says, this is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so John the Baptist says, look, I'm giving you a promise here, really. This Jesus will baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then Jesus himself begins to teach about the Holy Spirit, and he promises the Holy Spirit. So if you go to the the Gospel of John, where we find so much of Jesus' teaching on this, but in in John chapter 7 and verses 37 and on from there, Jesus is speaking at one of the great uh, Jewish festivals, and uh, he he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. So I'll just turn to Acts, let me go back to John, and uh, he stands up at 
this great festival. And in John chapter 7, this is what Jesus says. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the spirits whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given, at least not in this particular way, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. So Jesus is promising the Spirit. Those who believed in him were later to receive that promise, the promise of the Spirit. Again, Jesus is speaking to his disciples at the beginning of the Acts of the Apostles, and I'd like you to notice this particularly. We're in Acts chapter 1 here, and verses 4 and 5, and Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says this, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Father has promised this, says Jesus, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then the verses that we've just read in Acts chapter 2, where Peter is preaching, and he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Note this, the promise is for you and your children, and from all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. And then you come into the writings of Paul, and Paul in Galatians 3 says that by faith you might receive the promise of the Spirit. Or if you go to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14, having, or when you believed in him, you were marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. I want you to notice this. It's very clear. It's very specific. It's not just a general thing about the Holy Spirit. Again and again, what the Scripture says is that the Spirit Holy Spirit is promised. It is the promised Holy Spirit. And therefore, if the Holy Spirit is promised, we can expect something to actually happen. If you look at the New Testament and ask the question, what does Jesus promise us? Certainly, a big part of the answer would be, Jesus promises us the Holy Spirit. And that makes it, that promise, makes it a guaranteed certainty. I just had this rather vivid, if somewhat trivial, memory of when I was probably a very young teenager, and at that point, uh, portable tape recorders were just being produced for the first time. You could actually buy a portable tape recorder. I know this is very old technology now, uh, but as a young teenager, I was desperate for one of these portable tape recorders. And so I started to nag my parents about the coming Christmas and say, please, please, can I have one of these new tape recorders? And Christmas Day came, and what would I get? And uh, I ran in to see my parents and to pick up the presents, and uh, they said, "Uh, look, um, we've got something to say to you. Uh, We've investigated a, a tape recorder for you. They're actually very expensive, and so we're going to give uh, a tape recorder to you and to your sister as a joint present. My sister's four years younger than me, and you can have it as a joint present. But they haven't yet delivered it. Uh, But it will be delivered in the next few days. So I didn't have the tape recorder at that moment, but I had the promise. And because it came from my parents, and because they investigated it, I knew there was a guaranteed certainty about the promise. 
And so I spent the next few days telling my younger sister how exciting it would be when we got the fulfilment of the promise and the tape recorder was delivered. Frankly, she wasn't as excited as I was, but uh, I did try and impress upon her the excitement of this occasion. Uh, And sure enough, of course, the promise was fulfilled. Now, Jesus not only promises the Holy Spirit, but he builds our expectation about the promise. So, for example, in Luke eleven thirteen, if you then, though you are evil, that, is, that means evil in comparison to God, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So, my friends, please note this, we have the promise of the Spirit. It is the promised Holy Spirit. Now, secondly, I want uh, to answer a question. How is this promise fulfilled? And actually, this is very easy to demonstrate in a number of ways. And I want to give you some specific examples. So let's take the biblical examples first of all, at least a couple of the many that there are. Obviously, the day of Pentecost is a fulfillment of the promise of the Holy Spirit. And most of you will know the story. Uh, the disciples, frightened and scared after the, uh, the death of Jesus upon the cross and uh, wondering what their future was going to be, uh, they're gathered together in an, in an upper room, frightened uh, men and women. And then the day of Pentecost comes and the Spirit is poured out with power upon those gathered disciples, and there's fire, and there's wind, and the disciples begin to speak in tongues, and then they find courage as they are filled with the power of the Spirit to go out onto the streets and to preach uh, the living, risen Christ to people on the streets of Jerusalem. And so that's a very clear example of a pretty immediate fulfillment of the promise of the Spirit. Or you can go into Acts chapter 8, And there you will find that the gospel is preached in Samaria and people begin to respond. There's quite a a kind of revival in that city. People are responding to the gospel. But the disciples back in Jerusalem hear that these new converts have not yet received the promise of the Spirit. And so they come down from Jerusalem and they pray over these new converts And the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon these new converts. The promise is fulfilled. The Spirit is poured out upon them. Now, we don't know exactly what happened. The text doesn't tell us that. But clearly, it was a pretty powerful and significant occasion. Because there's an ex-magician there. And he watches as the disciples pray over these new converts. And he's so overwhelmed. He knows about power, this magician. And he offers money to the disciples and says, Hey, uh, please, uh, I'll give you money if you'll tell me how to lay hands on people so that uh, actually they also may receive the promise of the Spirit. So there was something very powerful that happened uh, to those Samaritan converts and the Spirit was poured out upon them. Now, there are many other examples like that in the New Testament, but let's move into history. Uh, I love the the story of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was a a great uh, American evangelist. In fact, he came over to this country and conducted crusades as well. He spoke uh, at Spurgeon's invitation in the Metropolitan uh, Tabernacle 
in London, but D.L. Moody tells a story of how as a young evangelist, he was preaching the gospel, and there was just a bit of success, not great success, and a couple of ladies came up to him, and they said, Mr. Moody, we are praying for you that you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And at first, D.L. Moody was a bit offended by it, but then he began to think about it and realized, actually, what they had said to him was really quite profound. And he himself began to pray that he might be baptized in the Holy Spirit. He might receive the promise of the Spirit. And he tells a story of how one day he was walking down a street in New York, and he says in his biography, what a day. How, How can I tell you about it. He says, the power of God came upon me with such force that I had to ask God to stay his hand. The power of the Spirit came upon him. And Moody tells how from that time on, he preached the same sermons, but with an altogether different result. And masses of people began to come to Christ in faith, because he had received the promise and the spirits had been poured out upon him. Uh, George Whitfield was, I think, the greatest preacher that this country has ever known, greatest preacher and the greatest evangelist. And there was one New Year's Eve when he and John Wesley, and indeed some others that we now call Methodists, were uh, gathered together for uh, an evening of prayer. And it was a remarkable occasion where both Whitfield and Wesley speak of the way that the Holy Spirit was suddenly poured out upon them in that prayer meeting. And they say it was a Pentecostal season and the Spirit was poured out. And really from that time on, Whitfield and Wesley began to minister into such a way as what became known as the Methodist revival began to break out in this country. But Whitfield says this about the filling and the pouring out of the Spirit. Whitfield says, this again is in his journals, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Oh, that all that deny the promise of the Father might receive it themselves. Oh, that all were partakers of my joy. And that's Whitfield testifying to the pouring out of the Spirit upon him. Now, you might say, well, D.L. Moody, uh, Wesley, Whitfield, very famous people. I mean, it's all right for them. It's what you might expect. But, friends, I want to say that we need to understand something even about the history, I think, of our kind of church. Uh, I suppose, really, our churches have been planted and established over, going back, what now, 30 to 40 years now, I suppose, and on since then. And uh, some of you might go back to the early days, as I can. Some of you will have come in more recently. You may not actually fully recognize this, but really our churches began because of baptism in the Spirit. That's really where we began, because what tended to happen was that there were Christians in quite traditional churches. They might, in many ways, have been very good churches, but there was no kind of ministry of the Holy Spirit, and suddenly God seemed to move and people began to experience God in a new way and uh, people were saying, I've been baptised in the Holy Spirit. And then it became difficult because in in many of these churches, uh, there was this new life of the Spirit coming on and how was it going to be handled? And really, out of all that, uh, 
to some degree, a, a bit of pain, a bit of furor, really. Uh, so our churches and churches like ours began to be formed and established. And it began because the Holy Spirit was being poured out. The promise of the Father was being given. And that's really why churches like this exist today and the growing movements of churches that we belong to. I want to give you a couple of more personal experiences. There's one story I have which I've told again and again. It's just it made such an impression in my life. It was quite significant for me, really. Uh, I I was a Baptist pastor. I went to Spurgeon's College and uh, I went to pastor a small Baptist church in Southampton. That was my first church. And as I went there, it was just about the beginning of the time when God seemed to be pouring out his spirit afresh and, and new things were beginning to happen and people were talking about being baptised in the spirit. Well, I was a very young pastor. I uh, didn't quite know what was happening, didn't quite understand what to do. Uh, but we heard that there was a meeting coming up at another Baptist church and for some of you, this will mean something called Basingstoke Baptist Church, a, a bit uh, north of Southampton, led by a pastor called Barney Coombs. And uh, there was a, an American group over known as the New Creation Singers. I'm, I'm never going to forget this night. And uh, uh, we were thinking about, should we go? So I, I kind of spoke to some people I thought would be interested. And when we, we took a group up. Uh, to Basingstoke Baptist Church, as as it was then known. Now, amongst this group, there was a young married couple who had just joined the church. Uh, And uh, the couple were known as Mike and Jane, and Jane was undoubtedly a Christian, but she was so timid and so shy uh, that she had never even been baptised as a believer. I've never quite worked out how in a Baptist church we had church members who hadn't been baptised, but that's another problem. Uh, But uh, uh, Jane was this very, very shy, very timid uh, young wife. And she was amongst this group uh, that we took up to Basingstoke Baptist Church. So there we are, and what then was a very traditional Baptist church in its architecture, uh, looked Baptist, had Baptist pews, and, uh, uh, but there was this American singing group called the New Creation Singers, and they were leading in worship, and it was all a lot more lively uh, than we were used to. And I was uh, standing in front of one pew, and Mike and Jane were behind me, and we were worshipping God, and suddenly Jane went bang, straight down on a pew. Uh, just flat out on this pew. I thought, my word, what's happened to her? Um, I mean, you didn't fall on pews. I mean, in Baptist churches in those days, you didn't even go to the toilet. I mean, you, you'd, uh, um, our services were so short in so many churches, you didn't even have toilets. So here was, uh, here was Jane out on a pew behind me. And I'm thinking, my word, what's happened to her? Uh, you know, I've never seen anything like this. I was really nervous. And I'm the pastor, and I'm only in my mid-twenties, and I don't know what to do. But I had a very slight knowledge of uh, uh, contact with Barney Coombs previously. So I, I walked up to him and said, please, will, I, will you talk to me? I took him outside the building. I said, that's one of my church members. I said, what's happened to her? And he said, oh, it's, it's all right. He said, it's one of two things. She's uh, either been baptised in the spirit or she's demon-possessed. You'll find out when she wakes up. <laughs> I said, oh, thanks very much. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, I went back in and she seemed to kind of come to after a time. Seemed all right. So I didn't get a chance to speak to her uh, that night. Uh, but the next day, I went to see her and said, please, what happened to you? And she said, I was there in the worship. And she said... The power of God came upon me with such force 
that I was literally knocked off my feet and just laid out on that pew. Now, a couple of weeks later, not only was she baptised in water, but she gave her testimony publicly to the whole church, having been filled and baptised in the Spirit. And let me tell you, to this day, she and her husband are very active members of Southampton Community Church. Now, what was my own position? Well, I got to a point where I felt I need to be baptised in the Spirit. I've been a Christian since I was a young boy. I was now a Baptist pastor, but I became convinced I need to be baptised in the Holy Spirit. So I began to seek God, and I had this day in my study when I was praying that God would baptise me in the Spirit. Now, I'd seen a little bit of charismatic life up to this point, and I couldn't understand why people put their arms up in the air. It just seemed a bit funny to me. Anyway, here I was praying that I'd be baptised in the Spirit, and suddenly I felt God come upon me and fill me. Now, if you fill something, you fill it from the bottom to the top. All I can say was I was filled from the top to the bottom. All right, I just felt the power of God come in me at the top of my head and begin to move down through my body. And two things happened spontaneously. And the two things that happened was that as the Holy Spirit went that way, so my arms went that way, and I felt myself on the arms in the air, and a stream of tongues came out of my mouth. And I just started to praise God in tongues and lift my arms in worship. And that was a turning point in my whole life and ministry. And I know that amongst numbers of you here, your, your testimony may not be identical to that by any means, but you'll have some testimony of how you were baptised in the Spirit, how the Spirit came upon you. So the point I'm making is this, the promise is given, the promise is fulfilled, people are baptised in the Spirit, God pours out his Spirit. And we know this to be true, because it happened in the stories of the Bible It's happened in history, and it's happened in personal experience of people in this room. Next, what happens when we are baptised in the Holy Spirit? Now, sometimes, uh, I want to deal with this because I think sometimes this is dealt with almost like a fixed formula. It can be very precise, and some uh, teachers have tried to suggest if you're baptised in the Spirit, what you do is speak in tongues, and uh, you put the great emphasis there, and it can be a very fixed way of looking at baptism of the Spirit. And I, I think that's not helpful. Jesus himself likened the coming of the Spirit to the wind. You don't know where it's coming from, where it's going to. There's a certain unpredictability about the wind, isn't there? And with the wind, sometimes it's a gentle breeze, sometimes it's a gale, sometimes it's a storm. And therefore, I think we need to understand that when we have the Spirit poured out upon us, the intensity of individual experience can vary very greatly, just as the wind can vary very greatly. But I do want to say this. I believe, on the basis of God's Word, that when we are baptised in the Holy Spirit, we know it. Now, today, we're in a situation where some people are disputing this. And uh, they say that baptism in the Spirit is something that is automatic at conversion. Now, I think that baptism in the Spirit can certainly happen at conversion, 
but the, the teaching by some is that, that baptism in the Spirit is automatic at conversion. I have to say, it's nothing like that in the New Testament. I don't know how well known uh, the name William Barclay is today. Certainly I think William Barclay is a name that will be known amongst preachers still. But William Barclay was in many ways an outstanding New Testament scholar. Uh, and his commentaries are incredibly useful in terms of background, Jewish background, for example, to the New Testament. It gives you a lot of information, which is very helpful. He was also a great Greek scholar, and so he can be very helpful in terms of what Greek words fully and properly mean. But he was very anti-supernatural. And so if you read his commentaries, good as they are in terms of background information, you'll find that whenever it comes to a miracle, William Barclay has a way of explaining it away. So, for example, when Jesus walks on the water, he doesn't really walk on the water. He finds a convenient sandbar and walks out into the water. And every miracle is dealt with like that. And so he explains away every miracle in the New Testament except the resurrection. And he believes that Jesus rose from the dead. So he's, he's not only a bad theologian, but he's an inconsistent theologian. Because uh, if you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, why can't you believe that Jesus fed 5,000, for example? But that's, that's William Barclay. But the reason that I mention him to you is this, that there is this very strong anti-supernatural kind of bias in William Barclay. Nevertheless, therefore hear this, because this is important. Nevertheless, when he came to the Acts of the Apostles and commented on the work of the Holy Spirit, this is what he said, no one experienced the Holy Spirit unconsciously in the New Testament. I find that a very significant statement from this man particularly. Nobody experienced in the New Testament the Holy Spirit unconsciously. I mean, the disciples at Pentecost, fire, wind, speaking in tongues, it was hardly unconscious, right? There was a conscious experience of God coming upon them with the result that it gave them great boldness to go and preach the gospel. So let me put this to you in broad terms. What are we conscious of when the Spirit is poured out upon us? Well, I would say this, a definite encounter with the power of God. Now, One criticism that one receives about this is that people then begin to say sometimes, oh, you're saying that if a person hasn't been baptised in the Holy Spirit in this way, that they don't have the Holy Spirit. Let me be absolutely very, very crystal clear on this. No one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian... What You have the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's at work in your life. You, you have known the work of God's Spirit taking place, giving you revelation and understanding. No one can say Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Spirit. But to be baptised in the Holy Spirit means a conscious encounter with the power of God. There is something consciously experiential about this. Now, In Romans chapter 8, for example, we get this wonderful statement by Paul, the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we are children of God. Friends, that is conscious experience. The Holy Spirit gives us an inner witness with our spirit. There's something that is happening within us. The Spirit witnessing with our spirit that we are children of God. How do you know you are a child of God? And You might say, because the Bible tells me so. 
John 3.16, that uh, whoever believes in him, uh, God gave his only son, but whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. It says that in the Bible, I believe it, and therefore it's true. And I would say absolutely. And at one level, you need no other assurance than that. All right, that is enough assurance in and of itself. If you had no other kind of assurance, that would be enough because the Bible is God's truth and it's God's word. And if God says, believe on Jesus Christ and you will be saved, actually, if you believe on Jesus Christ, you are saved. Believe the Bible and that is true for you. But the Bible does also speak of an inner witness of the Spirit. And that is sometimes how people experience baptism of the Spirit. That actually what they get is this overwhelming witness of the Spirit with their spirit that they are children of God. They kind of know it within as well as knowing it directly from the Word of God. Another thing I would mention is joy. If you're going to have an encounter with God, especially if you have an inner witness of the Spirit, what it's likely to do is to produce outward joy. And so very often... This is what is true for some who are baptised in the Spirit. There is immediately a kind of overflowing joy. I don't know if you know that wonderful verse in 1 Peter, chapter 1 and verse 8, where it says, though though we have not seen him, uh, we believe, or though you have not seen him, says Peter to to a church, though you have not seen him, you believe in him. And uh, he speaks of the fact that this church, not having seen Christ but believing in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, actually is a church that is full of overflowing and glorious joy. He talks in the NIV, translation anyway, of an inexpressible and glorious joy, which I've always found a funny translation, because obviously the joy was being expressed. It wasn't inexpressible, it was being expressed. But actually, it was being expressed even short of what they would have felt in terms of joy. There was an expression of overflowing and glorious joy. That's a church where people are baptised in the Spirit. That There's this overflowing and glorious joy. There's also release. And most commonly that comes about in speaking in tongues. That was certainly my very spontaneous experience. Now speaking in tongues is not a foreign language that you're able to speak even though you haven't learned it. Sometimes that does happen. I believe when that happens, that's a miracle. I've actually known that happens sometimes. There was a a main speaker at the Brighton conference some years ago who actually prayed over somebody in a tongue. Somebody else in the congregation there said they're speaking a Chinese language. They could interpret the Chinese language. I think that's a miracle. My own son, Matt, who's a, a pastor, he once spoke in a tongue and somebody in the congregation said that's an Eastern European language. And they were able to translate it. So sometimes that miracle happens, that somebody speaks in a language uh, that they actually haven't learned. But that is not typical. Typically, when you speak in tongues, you speak in an unknown language by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this doesn't mean that somehow you're taken over and lose control of yourself. But speaking in tongues does mean that you speak. I speak English by opening my mouth and letting out the words. You speak in tongues by opening your mouth and speaking out what God is giving to you. And for some believers, at first, that seems strange. To be honest, it never did with me, 
when I was baptised in the Spirit, it was just kind of so spontaneous that it, it just seemed totally authentic the moment that it happened. But some people think it's a bit strange at first, but you get used to it as, as time moves on. Can I say this, though, and I do feel this very strongly, it's wrong to try and force a person to speak in tongues. That is a result of bad theology. Because actually, it springs from the idea that baptism in the Spirit is speaking in tongues. Friends, it's not. Baptism in the Spirit is a fruit of speaking. Sorry, speaking in tongues is a fruit of baptism in the Spirit. The power of the Spirit comes upon you, and actually a fruit of that is that you begin to speak in tongues. But baptism in the Spirit also releases other gifts. If you go to Acts chapter 19, and Paul comes across a group of men, it's, I love the way it says in the New Testament, there were about 12 of them. Uh, this uh, this uh, Luke, who, Apostle Luke, who wrote the Acts of the Apostles, was obviously used to cell or small groups. You know, you say to a small group leader, uh, how many were at your cell last night? And he says, oh, about about 12, and you think, nine, you know, right? And, uh, and so, and so uh, Paul comes across, Luke says, about 12 men in Ephesus, all right? So I reckon there were about nine, really. And, uh, uh, but he, he ministers to them, and uh, they are filled with the Spirit. They begin to speak in tongues, but they begin to prophesy. And that is that uh, you receive a burden which is given from God, and you speak it out in your own words. There's also release in worship. Uh, we get freed up, right? You can learn behavior. You can clap your hands. You can just put your, your hands up in the air because other people are doing it. But I tell you, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, it's not learned behavior. You just want to be released in worship. You want to give your all to God. You want to dance. You want to clap. Right? You want to raise your hands because the power of the Spirit has come upon you. And so the, the early disciples, when the Holy Spirit came upon them on the day of Pentecost, when they were baptised in the Holy Spirit, they became a powerful witnessing community. So power is also another mark of the baptism of the Spirit in your life. The disciples have been fearful, they've been locked away, but when the Spirit came upon them, they were out on the streets, there was power to proclaim the gospel of Christ. My friends in the local church, we desperately need that today. Lord, pour out your spirit that the power of God may be upon us to give us courage and boldness to preach, testify, and witness to the gospel of Christ. And there is also power to change your understanding. Again, if I may be very personal here, I never understood the church until I was baptised in the Holy Spirit. I'd grown up in a particular church tradition, but that church tradition was all that I had seen of the church. When I was baptised in the Spirit, everything in my understanding began to change about the nature and the glory of the Christian church. And from that day, I've been a great lover of local churches. I'm actually a great lover of local church leaders you know, I come here to a church like this, and uh, I know that Graham and Sue came here 13 years ago and started from scratch, and I, I see a congregation of quite some size today, and brothers and sisters, it's wonderful, it's wonderful. Right? This is the local church, and God has gathered it and done a great work amongst you. The Spirit is poured out. 
Okay, lastly, who is the promise for? We're talking all the time about the promise, the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the promise for? Go back to Isaiah 44 and verse 3. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Go to Acts 2, uh, 38, 39. Repent, be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit Note this, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. In other words, Old Testament and New Testament, it is universal. It's a promise that's universal for the people of God. Peter can hardly put it any more clearly, can can he? He says the promise is for you. Let me give you... a huge bit of revelation here. Right? This is real revelation, I believe. You means you. <laughs> the promise is for you. And I want to emphasize this because I want you to be open to what God has promised. To be baptized in the Holy Spirit, you need to believe the promise is for you. Can I say... I want to put it like this. The baptism of the Spirit is not a matter, I think I'll give it a try. You know, we've heard some teaching, we've heard some explanation. I wonder if anything could happen to me. I'll give it a try. That's not faith. We need faith here. And the promise of the Word of God is to build our faith. So please don't come with the idea that this is something, you know, I'm going to give it a try. You need to believe this Word of God. It is for you. And also, I would appeal to you, don't start thinking, well, I'm not good enough for this. That's a given, actually. None of us are. (laughs) It's a given. But you can let that be a block to your faith. God is a God of grace, and the promise is for you. So to receive, we must believe and look to God in faith. Again, if I might be personal... It was through the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on the baptism of the Spirit that I, as a person who needs to be theologically convinced, became theologically convinced. I was theologically convinced, and then I was able to come in faith, believing that the promise was for me. You need faith. I think also we need to thirst. If you really want this from God... Now, there's something here I've pondered a lot. In the early days of the charismatic... Movements and the early days of our churches being formed, I think what was distinctive at that time was that the people of God were thirsty. There was a thirst for more of God. There was a thirst for the Holy Spirit. Over the years, it seems sometimes to become harder to see people baptised in the Holy Spirit. And I thought about this a lot. And I think the reason that sometimes today it may seem to be harder is perhaps today people are not so thirsty. In Isaiah 44 here, it says God will pour water on thirsty ground. He'll pour out his streams of water on dry ground. Are you thirsty? Do you feel, Lord, I'm somewhat dry? There are two opposite dangers here. What was true probably amongst Pentecostals years ago was one particular danger where they would sometimes run what was called tarrying, tarrying meetings. 
And so after a service, what you would do is you'd gather people together and say, we will tarry here until the Holy Spirit comes upon us. Now, you can go on for hours doing that. And the danger is you begin to work people up into a bit of a psychological frenzy, really. Right? So that's a particular danger one way. I think the danger the other way is where the message comes across as though this is something that's instantly possible for you to receive right now. And certainly that is possible, and I don't want to deny that, but actually, I think for some people, it doesn't become instant like that because what God is looking for in us is a thirst, is a hunger, is a perseverance. God, I really am hungry and thirsty for you. And again, if I can be personal, it was some time after I genuinely believed the promises for me that I actually received because I was hungering and thirsting for something from God. And then what we need to do is to ask. Simply ask God for what he's promised. There's no set way about this. Uh, Somebody else can pray with you. Uh, You can be in a small group and pray together. You can pray on your own, as was true with me. I've even known of people who've been praying and have woken up in the middle of the night speaking in tongues. So they are fast asleep and all of a sudden they wake up and speak in tongues. And God has visited them even while they were asleep. But Jesus does tell us to ask for the Holy Spirit. And then receive. As you feel God coming to you, receive what he gives. Joy, tongues, prophecy. Receive what he gives. If you're being given a gift, you do actually have to receive it. Or it falls to the ground. My friends, what I'm talking about today is not weird. It really isn't. The New Testament church was a community of the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17, it says, The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. We're a community of the Spirit. What I'm talking about today is historic and biblical Christianity. As I finish, you may have heard sometimes the old story about the Christian leader was asked if he'd been filled with the Spirit. It may actually have been moody. Uh, Have you been filled with the Spirit? And this uh, Christian leader replied and said, yes, but I leak. And you can be baptised in the Spirit, and some of us may have been baptised in the Spirit many years ago, and that's a gateway experience of knowing and being filled and living life in the Spirit. But we can leak, we can get dry, we can get empty, There's nothing wrong in coming again and asking God to again fill you with his Holy Spirit. Look at the New Testament, and disciples filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost are filled again later, other occasions, with the Holy Spirit. And you're about to uh, enter a series on spiritual gifts. That's not going to be an academic series where you're just given information. But actually, it'll be speaking to people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and able, therefore, to minister the gifts of the Spirit. And why should that be? Because the Holy Spirit will do through us what the Holy Spirit always wants to do, and that is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand together, can we?